I should like to call your attention briefly this morning to the words which we read at the beginning in the Gospel according to St. Luke in the second chapter, and with particular reference perhaps to the seventh verse. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. I wanted, as I say for this brief time this morning, just to make a series of comments upon the record which is given us here in this chapter of the birth of our Lord and Savior. And I do that in order that we may be able to think aright as to the meaning of this particular day and this particular season of the year. It was never perhaps more necessary that one should do that than it is just at this present moment. For the world, moved and instigated by the devil, the great antagonist and opponent of God, is doing its utmost to rob us of the real meaning and significance of what happened nearly 2,000 years ago. The world would evaporate all this into some vague, a general spirit of fellowship and friendship and good cheer. It talks about the Christmas spirit. And it is so easy for us to be influenced by this outlook and this way of thinking that belongs only to the world and rarely has nothing whatsoever to do with the great and glorious message of the Christian gospel. And of course the only way to avoid all that and to counteract it is to keep on coming back to the records, to the New Testament itself. For here, thank God, we are not only given the teaching, but we are given the facts accompanying them. And we are not only given the facts, we are given an explanation of the meaning and the significance and the purpose of the facts. And so, it is obvious that in the wisdom of God, these records were written in order that we might ever be kept to the truth and safeguarded from these alien forces that are ever trying to rob us, I say, of what is, after all, the very central glory of the things that bring us together this morning. And so we go back to this old story, to the very detailed account which is given us in this particular section of Scripture. Now, the first thing that we notice is this, that what we are thinking about at the moment and what we are concerned about is history. The very style of the record should have impressed that fact upon us in and of itself. There is something almost prosaic about this record. It's almost like uh, looking at a parish register came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. Now, that's, that's just history. That's just a pure a bit of history. And then to make it uh, still more ordinary, as it were, to link it still more firmly to fact, we've got this statement in verse 2 in brackets. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. Now, why do you think we are given facts like that? Well, the answer is, of course, 
just to fix and to establish the historicity of all this, to remind us and to make it certain that we should never lose sight of the fact that the Christian message, the Christian faith, the whole of the Christian gospel is based solidly upon events, upon facts that have taken place in the realm of history. Caesar Augustus, he was the emperor at this particular time. Well, he belongs to history, as Julius Caesar, one of his predecessors, belongs to history. So we must always start by when we come to this season of the year and to Christmas Day in particular, by reminding ourselves that we are not concerned here about a teaching, about a philosophy. It isn't what the world calls the Christmas spirit. There is such a thing as the, the Christmas spirit, but that isn't the Christian thing. That's something that belongs, as I said, to the world. The world has its teachings, its philosophies, its kind of spirit. But we, we are not concerned with it. This isn't a, a just a one teaching amongst a number of other teachings, a teaching that may be of some use and value at the present time in the state of the world, something that might be good for statesmen to think of as they meet in conference, or industrialists, employers, and labor to have in their minds as they meet together at the conference table. This isn't concerned about that at all. This is primarily an announcement, a proclamation of events. Something that has actually and has concretely taken place in this world. It's a hard fact. How easy I say it is to lose all that. And even to turn what happened in Bethlehem so long ago into a sort of fairy tale. A wonderful and a beautiful tale, a picture, sort of thing you can read of in a novel. But that isn't it. The record, if we'll only listen to it, if we'll only read it properly, dismisses all that. It ties us down to these hard facts. When Caesar Augustus was the emperor, this particular thing happened. And so, you see, the scripture is careful to give us all these particulars and details in order that we may see that we are looking at something that has happened in the world in exactly the same way as the conquest of Britain took place in 55 or 54 BC, whichever it was, in exactly the same way this took place. So we do our utmost to rid ourselves of all false sentiment, all wrong thinking. And we remind ourselves together this morning that as you and I were once upon a time helpless babes, so on this occasion the Son of God came out of glory and was born as a babe out of Mary's womb wrapped up in swaddling clothes and placed in a manger. Surely at a time like this, nothing is more important than that we should always hold firmly onto the historicity of all this. Never perhaps was history more important than just at this present juncture in the life and story of mankind. The Bible is a book of history. This isn't the teaching of philosophy offered to men. This is a record of what God has done. God 
created the world. God made men. Men sinned. God came down and spoke to him. God began to plan a way of salvation, took a man called Abram, turned him into a nation. That's a fact of history. And so he's gone on through the running centuries. He's been doing things. He's been intervening. Here is the great climax. Here is the crucial event when he sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law. Yes, but let us remember, we haven't come to the end yet. According to this book, God hasn't finished. God is still acting in history. And therefore, as we meet in this confused modern world this morning, let us remember that our God is still a God who acts in history, and he's going to do so. The Bible teaches that God will again send his son, not as a babe, but as the judge eternal. Hold on then, I say, my dear friends, to the historical facts. This is not a picture. It's not a fairy tale, a fantasy. This is sheer history. It happened concretely in this world. But then that leads me to a second thought, which is this, which is equally clear, it seems to me, in the record. And that is God's control of history. There is nothing more comforting than this. God controls history. Now, where do we see that in this record? Well, we see it here. You read this statement. It came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And then this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And you can find out exactly from the secular history books as to when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. Now the significant thing, of course, about this taxing was this. That everybody who belonged to the Roman Empire at that time uh, was subject to this tax. The Romans had conquered Palestine so all the Jews were subject to this tax. And uh, what it involved, we are told, we are given this further detail, is this, that all went to be taxed, every one, into his own city. If you traced your line, your genealogy, back, you found that your family had started in a certain place. Well, you had to go back to that place, which was the kind of birthplace, starting point of your particular family. And they all knew this, and so at this time they all had to travel to this particular town or city or village to which they belonged. All went to be taxed, every one into his own city. And therefore, Joseph had to go from Galilee out of Nazareth into Judea, into the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. And again, we are given the reason why. Because he was of the house and lineage of David. But now here is the interesting thing. Why do you think Caesar Augustus decided to do this at that given point in history? Do you think this was just an accident? Is it just that this great emperor suddenly got an idea or a kind of whim? He suddenly thought to himself, ah, I think I'll tax the, the whole of my world. Do you think it's that? Do you think this was a, a pure accident? Just something that chanced to take place? It might equally well not have taken place? No, no, my dear friend, you can't possibly think that if you know your Bible at all. 
you know that that is an utterly impossible explanation. Do you know why Caesar Augustus decided at this point that the whole world that was subject to him should be taxed? There's only one adequate answer to the question. It was God who put it into his mind. Why did God put it into his mind? Well, God put it into his mind because he had decided and determined before the foundation of the world that it was at this particular moment that his son was going to come into the world to redeem mankind. Not only that, he had already given intimation nearly eight centuries before through the prophet Micah that when his son did come into the world, he was to be born as a babe in Bethlehem. So you see, two things were fixed in the mind of God from eternity, Bethlehem and the exact time. How is that to be brought to pass? Well, the method, it seems to me, was obvious. God puts it into the mind of this pagan emperor, Caesar Augustus that the whole world should be taxed at that moment. And that involved, of course, that Joseph and Mary had to go up from Nazareth to Bethlehem, and they had to be there at the exact moment when the son was to be born. So we are given the further details. To be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. Seems an accident, doesn't it? The world looking on would say, what a pity. What a pity that a woman in this condition has to take a journey at this particular time. And isn't it unfortunate that the babe should be born while she's at Bethlehem instead of being born when she was in her home in Nazareth? But my dear friends, that's to display an ignorance of the whole Bible. God says his son's going to be born in Bethlehem. The Bethlehem Ephrata, the very least of the of the cities of Judah. It's there. Seed of David. Hadn't God given a promise to David centuries before? Ten centuries before. God had given him a promise. It was out of his house and lineage that the Messiah was going to come. Accident? It's the exact opposite of accident. It is the perfect working and planning of the one who created the whole world out of nothing. The one who said, let there be light, and there was light. The right moment, the right place, the right everything. God controlling history. Do you know of anything more comforting this morning? Yeah, you see, as I say, is a pagan emperor, Caesar Augustus. It doesn't matter what a man is, how great in power or might, it doesn't matter whether he's a believer in God or not. God is over all and God overrules everything. He could raise a man like Cyrus to do his work. He could use a man like Nebuchadnezzar. God can use anybody. Everything is under his hand. Everything is in his power. And so we see here in this prosaic account of what happened, the mighty operation of God's plan. God ruling and overruling the history of the whole world. And let us take comfort this morning by realizing that all the powers that be today are under the mighty hand of God. The sort of Christian I simply cannot begin to understand is the sort of Christian who's afraid of communism or of any other ism or power. Here's your answer. 
God does what he plans and proposes exactly the very moment he's decided. Let the powers do or say whatever they will. Here's a man who gets an idea about taxing. He doesn't know what's happening. He doesn't know where the ideas come from. He thinks it's his idea. It isn't. It's God. Caesar Augustus is but as clay in the hands of Almighty God. Oh, this is not only history. It is God's history. And notice another interesting detail. You see, the Jews were very careful about uh, preserving their genealogies, their family trees. The Jew could always trace his pedigree right back. Why? Well, because everybody had to be registered. And they were very careful about the keeping of these registers. Why do you think that happened? Do you think again that that was just some accident? Some odd idea, something that uh, seemed to be peculiar to the Jews and their outlook? No, no. It's God, you see. He said at the beginning that the Messiah was to come out of Abram, and especially out of the tribe of Judah, and especially out of the house of David. And he knew that there are critics, people who are always ready to deny him and his lordship and his overruling, so God doesn't take any accidents. He makes them keep the careful record so that it can be proved that Jesus of Nazareth is a descendant of David, out of the house of Judah, a descendant of Abram, and back ultimately to Adam and to God. Isn't it extraordinary? Isn't it amazing? Well, I know of nothing better to cheer our hearts on a Christmas morning such as this than to realize things like this. Christian people, we are in the hands of God And he's a God who knows us like this intimately, takes nothing for granted, takes no chances, organizes, plans, everything with an amazing and an absolute perfection. Oh yes, the decree was promulgated at the right moment just to assure that this child should be born of the Virgin Mary at that moment and in that particular place. Thank God for the simple record, for the unpretentious record, apparently on the surface, so unlike the world. You see, we are accustomed to a world in which everything is built up by propaganda. Haven't you noticed it? That's how the world does things. If a great man's going to visit a country, you get the preliminary build-up. It's done with film stars, actors, even preachers sometimes. The build-up, notices, announcements, Proclamations, everything built up, great blare of trumpets. This seems so ordinary, doesn't it? There seems to be nothing here. Oh, this is how God acts. This is God's method. Look at the miracles he works in nature. Look look how he produces life. How quietly and unobtrusively, apparently, but it's God and it's miraculous beyond the understanding of men. That's what he was doing here. But nothing could go wrong. And nothing went wrong. It was all according to the predeterminate counsel and foreknowledge of God. But let me hasten to another thought. Look at what we are told here about the state and the condition of the world into which the Son of God came. The stark realism of it all is very wonderful. Look at the world, I say, into which he came. And then look at the modern world. And can we still say that the world is improving, that the world is a better place? 
Can we still pit evolution against Christ and against God's activity? Can we say there is no need of salvation, no need of the Son of God, because the world is automatically getting better and better? I don't see how anybody can say that who's ever read this account and has then looked at the modern world. Because this is the world. She brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. Why? Well, because there was no room for them in the inn. What does that tell us about the world? Well, what he tells us about the world of those days, and what is so equally true of the world of these days, is this. The world, with all its cleverness and all its supposed wisdom, is never aware of what is really significant. Just think, cast your minds back to the mentality of the crowd in Bethlehem on that occasion. They were there, they'd come from everywhere. They'd all have to go back there who came out of the house and lineage of David. And the place was full, packed out. All the hostelries, all the inns, they were all full up, could take no more. And there they are, and listen to the animated conversation. What are they all talking about? Well, of course, they're talking about the tax. The injustice of the tax. What right had this foreign power that had conquered their land to impose this tax. It's just a man's whim. What right is he to put us to this inconvenience? He's taking yet more money from us. Can't you see the conversation about politics, taxes, money, prosperity, success, all these things. That's what they're all talking about. Now nobody took notice of the fact that a woman in this last stage of pregnancy had just arrived. The world didn't know that the most momentous thing that had ever happened in the world was taking place amongst them. Quite unaware of it, nobody was saying a word about it. The biggest thing, the most glorious, the most wonderful thing, the most momentous thing, I say, that has ever happened in the whole course of history was taking place there and then in, in Bethlehem. The world knew nothing about it. Wasn't giving it a single thought. Meeting, talking, drinking, dancing, complaining, arguing about politics and economics. On it went and on and on, day and night, hour after hour. And completely unaware of the really significant thing, the spiritual, the unseen, the eternal, the divine. The world is never aware of what is really significant. The world today is arguing about bombs and war and taxes and having a good time and food and clothing and pleasure and sex and a thousand and one other things as if these were the things that mattered. And the one thing that really counts is not apprehended. The world pays no attention to it. Conferences, great men. This is the way. Acts of Parliament. Reform of society. We are going to do this and that. Still the same, you see. And here the whole time amongst them is the gospel of God. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel of salvation. 
The one thing that really can put the world right is being ignored. They're not paying any attention to it. They're not thinking about it. They're dismissing it. Oh, that's a fairy tale, they say. That's an old something. Our fathers believed in that. Our great-grandfathers believed in the incarnation and in the miracles and in the atonement. We are learned people and we are going to put the world in order. And you see what's happening. Look at the world. The really momentous and significant thing was ignored then, it's ignored now. The only thing that matters in this world this morning is the thing that you and I are met together to celebrate. All the talk of the world will come to nothing. It's been talking like this throughout the centuries, but the world is worse than ever. But still it'll go on doing it, and it won't listen to this. Beloved friends, our business is to see that this is heard. Let us tell them this good news. Let us make a proclamation to them. Let us tell them to stop and to think and to open their eyes and to realize the significance of that which is amongst them, which is the only thing that really matters and can finally do any good. I don't stay with the other thing that is much more obvious. The utter selfishness and cruelty of the world. This babe was born in a stable with the cattle and the sheep on the straw. And when they wrapped him up in his swaddling clothes, there was nowhere to put him except into a manger. Why? Well, because there was no room for them in the inn. What's a pregnant woman to a man? Who's always looking after himself. What's the phrase? I'm all right. I always look after number one. I'm all right. My family is all right. That was the world then. Why should we turn out? We've booked. We are here first. These people have only just arrived. Is it to be expected that we turn out? Why should we? Why? Certainly not. So you stay where you are, you see. No room for them in the inn. Woman in this condition, babe about to be born. What's the use of talking about our knowledge and our learning and our advance? When hardness and coldness and selfishness and self-centeredness are more evident perhaps in life than they ever were. What's in matter, says everybody? What's it matter as long as I'm all right? I'll disrupt the country. I don't care. What's it matter what goes wrong? If I want to gratify my lust and passion, what are my little children or the other woman's children? What, why, why should I consider that? I want this. I like this. Therefore, I have it. And so we trample upon the sanctities. We desecrate everything that is noble and good. And the agony and the heartbreak and the suffering in the world are as great as they are revealed day by day in our morning newspapers. No room for them in the end. Everybody out for himself. This is the spirit of the world, the spirit that denies God and rejects Christ. Of course it is. It's the exact opposite of it, you see. That was the world into which he came. So let me end on this note. Let me remind you of some of the things about his coming into it. The first thing is this, the very fact that he ever came at all, doesn't it amaze you that into a world such as I've been describing came the eternal Son of God?
How can God tolerate us? Foolish, superficial people say, Why does God allow this? Why does God allow that? Why does God allow war? And so on. My dear friend, the question you ought to ask is this. Why does God allow the world to exist at all? A world such as this, full of meanness and selfishness, self-centeredness, malice and spite, it's no use telling me about the Christmas spirit when people in a state of intoxication and more drunk than sober appear to be hail fellow well met. I say look at life as it is. See the ugliness, the foulness, the coldness, the selfishness. Now it was into a world like that that the Son of God came. And I say this is the astounding, almost incredible thing that he should ever have come at all. What would be our reaction to such a world? Well, this is our reaction to such people. Let him go. Not worth bothering about. So hopeless. That's our attitude, isn't it? It wasn't God's. It was into such a world that the Son of God came. And then look at the way in which he came. Look at the humility. Look at the lowliness. He who had been in the eternal bosom from all eternity, sharing the glory of the Father, who had ever been in the form of God, God the Son, coming into a stable, born onto the straw, placed in a manger. Is there anything more glorious, more moving, more wonderful than this? Modern men and women who are interested in drama and in spectacle and in show, I invite you to look at this again. Here it is. The King of glory coming down on earth to dwell. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead, see. Hail, incarnate deity. Look at the paradoxes, the amazing paradoxes. Here it is, mild, oh how mild. Mild he lays his glory by. He did. He couldn't have come in a more lowly, in a more humble manner. The poorest of the poor is born in some sort of a shed or hovel. He's born in a stable. He came right down to the depths. He suffered poverty extreme. Suffering, humiliation that is even beyond our understanding. Well, think of that. Then ask yourself, why did he come? Why did he come like that into a world like this? I'll tell you why. He came because, as we are told here, he is Christ, the Lord, a Savior. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. He came to save men. And how can he do it? There's only one way. He must become like us. He must take our nature upon him. He must enter into our condition. He doesn't do it by a fiat from heaven. He doesn't do it by a great display of eternal glory and power. No, no. There's only one way to save men. That is to become man's representative. That means taking on man's nature. That means the incarnation. That means the virgin birth. He's man, truly man. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. He's bone of our bone, flesh of our flesh. He's man with us. He has come to save, so he must take our nature upon him. He must learn our experiences if he is to be our shepherd, our leader, 
our high priest. He must be tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. If he were God only, he couldn't be tempted, but he becomes man, and so he's subject to temptation, and he was tempted. He has come down in order to save. It involves all these things, taking our nature, being subject to our stresses and strains, the poverty, the shame, the humility, the work as a carpenter, all this. He shared human life in all its details. He's come down to our condition. There is none beneath him. He's come down to the depths. He did it all, and he did it all in that way, in order that he might rescue us and redeem us. This was only the beginning, you know. This had to happen in order that the end at Calvary might take place, where he takes our sins upon him. And our sins are punished in him, and he dies and is buried, put into our grave, but rises again. That's why he did it. And so we end with this thought. The love that led to it all. That is why God didn't blot out the earth and the world and its peoples. His long-suffering, his compassion, his love, his grace, his mercy, that's what we are told here. It's all in this one babe. There is the love of God incarnate. There is the grace, the mercy, the compassion. It's all there. It is because God's name is love that he did this. And his son humbled himself. And came so low that we sinful, selfish, vile creatures might be forgiven, might be reconciled to God, might be given a new nature, might indeed become ourselves the sons of God and the heirs of eternal glory. Thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. Amen.